The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. George Matheson was born in Glasgow, Scotland in uh, March of 1842. He had very poor eyesight at birth and it developed eventually into blindness. And I think that that was, in a sense, something that gave him new sight as it relates to suffering in the life of a believer. And so listen to something that he wrote. He said, There is a time coming when your glory shall consist in the very thing which now constitutes your pain. Ask the great ones of the past, which has been the spot of their prosperity, and they will say, it was the cold ground on which I was lying. Ask Abraham, he will point to the sacrifice at Mount Moriah. Ask Joseph, he will direct you to his dungeon. Ask Moses, he will date his fortune from his danger in the Nile. Ask Ruth, she will bid you build her monument in the field of her toil. Ask David, he will tell you that his songs came in the night. Ask Job, he will remind you that God answered him out of the whirlwind. Ask Peter, he will extol his submersion in the sea. Ask John, he will give you the path to Patmos. Ask Paul, he will attribute his inspiration to the light which struck him blind. Sometimes blindness is what it takes for us to see. There's this idea of suffering as a blessing and rejoicing in trials, being faithful under pressure, it saturates the Bible. And yet when we taste suffering, whether it be physical or mental or social, it doesn't feel good. It feels strange. It seems totally abnormal. It's an unwelcome interruption in our plans. We don't have time for it, and we often question God why he would ever allow it. Or we choose the route of avoidance altogether. You know, some suffering can be avoided if we choose to keep our mouth closed, if we choose to keep our heart closed when we see someone spiraling away from God, closing our doors to to people in our lives that are farthest from God, that can shield us from some difficulty. Peter addresses suffering in the Christian life head on, doesn't he, in 1 Peter? It's, It's a recurring theme, and we see it particularly clearly in our passage this morning. And I think this is God's grace to you and to me. We're all at different places, and yet we share the same reality. We live in a broken, sinful, dark world that we're called to be lights in. We're called to point to the one who restores and saves. But, but hear this, the means God often uses to sanctify and purify and grow us in our relationship with him to establish our witness in this world is often, even usually, commonly suffering. So we have to have a handle on this. It's not a small thing. How often is it skipped in a kind of our discipleship because we want to avoid it so much? Thankfully, Peter doesn't skip it because he sees it as a core kind of pillar in what it means to follow Jesus, who suffered and died to bring us to God. Friend, are you surprised by suffering? The main point of our sermon this morning is this. I'm just really paraphrasing verse 19. If you look at our passage, verse 19 is kind of Peter's conclusion. But here's the main point. 
We can trust God in suffering knowing that he is using it for our good. And he is faithful to keep us and to use us for his glory. We can trust God in suffering knowing that he is using it for our good. And that he is faithful to keep us and use us for his glory. And so I just want to walk through our passage by asking three questions. Those questions are listed there in your bulletin if you want to follow along that way. Three questions regarding suffering as a believer. Number one, should I expect it? Should I expect to suffer as a Christian? Number two, well, what's the purpose of suffering in my life? What's the purpose of suffering in my life? And then finally, number three, how do I remain faithful in the midst of suffering? How do I remain faithful in the midst of suffering? May the Lord minister his grace to us this morning. First question, should I expect to suffer as a Christian? Here in verse 12, at the beginning, Peter is starting a new section in his letter. I think it's the closing section of 1 Peter. Uh, You can see he ended last time with a doxology. He just left off in verse 11 of chapter 4, praising God for his dominion and his glory. That's a pattern we've seen in 1 Peter. He did that earlier in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 11, he begins a new section starting off with that word beloved, and then he gives a command, abstain from these passions of your flesh. Well, that's what he does here. He says, beloved, and that's followed by this imperative, do not be surprised. So in this last section of the letter, he's trying to bring comfort to those who are enduring suffering as they follow Jesus. And let us just learn from Peter here, even in this brief introduction, before we get to the hard truths related to our suffering, the context is love, isn't it? Beloved. He's addressing the beloved of God. It it means uh, much love, those who are held in affection, esteemed. It's what it means to be a part of the people of God. Peter is talking to us about suffering as the much loved of God. That's just a helpful reminder for us as we minister to others in suffering, the way we speak to them with tenderness and grace and love, and the way that we hear and think ourselves about suffering as a Christian to remember that we are those who are deeply loved by God, his beloved. And whatever may come to us in way of suffering, it's never a contradiction to his fatherly, faithful love for us. It's to the beloved that Peter writes in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter assumes, doesn't he, that our natural reaction to suffering would be surprise. He knows that deep down we view suffering as and difficulty as abnormal. We see harmony and peace and happiness and ease as the norm. Have you ever thought about why we think that way? That maybe that's even sort of embedded in our, in our hearts from sort of this lingering echoes, the lingering echoes of the life of Eden before the fall where there was no, there were no pain and suffering that we had to deal with and we, we, something in us says it shouldn't be this way. Things shouldn't be so hard and so painful and yet Peter is writing to people who live after the fall after Eden, after the effects of sin have made their mark on every part of our lives. Therefore, suffering is actually normal. It is the norm in life. It's common. It's usual. And being a Christian doesn't shield us from that reality. In fact, it may even intensify it. 
Peter's writing to Christians who are experiencing suffering because of their Christianity. So he says, do not be surprised when you are faced with fiery trials, when they come upon you to test you. We'll get back to the, the testing in a minute. But these fiery trials, I think it was likely that refers back to chapter 1. Remember he mentioned various trials, chapter 1, verse 6. I, I think so, so trials and this fiery suffering, I think, includes a wide range of suffering from seasons in life that, that are difficult, lacking in provision, protection, stability, from pain to losing a loved one or dealing with the effects of sin on our own bodies, the experience of a, the dark night of the soul, of deep, dark depression, Satan's attacks on us that can tempt us with despair. And then certainly the immediate context here of, of various levels of persecution, verbal and physical abuse on the account of Christ, being rebuked or insulted or sort of socially set aside because you're a Christian. Peter says that is not strange. You are now strange. Don't think of that being strange. Think of yourselves as being in the position of being strange to the world. Remember last week we saw non-believers are surprised when you don't join them in the same sins you used to do, and so they malign you. They are surprised we shouldn't be. Suffering with and for Jesus is actually a universal mark of the church. He says in chapter 5, verse 9 of First Peter, resist him firm in your faith, the devil, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Paul told the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 3, 3, let no one be moved by these afflictions that you're experiencing, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Destined for affliction. We should expect suffering to come into our lives as followers of Jesus. But Peter reminds us that he's not talking about just any kind of suffering, particularly suffering for our sinful behavior. Verse 15, he said this again, this, this sort of theme but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. When you read that list, does one of those jump out to you? It's kind of an interesting list. It begins at sort of the, the greatest thing we could think of and goes down sort of to the real life lesser things in our, in our everyday day-to-day lives. I think that's a, that spectrum is a, maybe a hint that we we're, we're just live lives that are above reproach. I don't know. I doubt there were believers murdering people here that Peter's addressing actually what you're doing, but we shouldn't think we're above that sin or, or thievery um, or being an evildoer. I think it's a general description of just a sinful lifestyle. But think about it. It's hard for people to take you seriously when you talk about an eternal, imperishable inheritance when you're stealing from work. Like that, that kind of doesn't really help your witness, does it? Or when you talk about not responding to evil and then when someone uh, sins against you, you respond with violence. But then Peter even talks about, gets down to the, like, meddling. Meddling in the lives of others, being sort of a busybody, being, being nosy, being in someone else's business that you don't belong in. You shouldn't be thought of in that way either. From top to bottom, we should seek to honor Christ with our lives because we carry his name with us, don't we? Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. It's only one of a handful of references in the New Testament that, that the, the, the believers are referred to as Christians. Uh, the word means follower of Jesus. Jesus. 
So if you, if you suffer along the path of following Jesus, Peter says, do not be ashamed, but seek to glorify God in that name. I think that name refers to the name Christian. So, so why would someone be ashamed of taking up the name of Christian? Well, being a Christian in Peter's day would have put believers in the difficult position of opposing much of the normal way of life of their culture, from issues of morality to theology. So they're no longer immediately, no longer at home in a culture of godlessness and sinful pursuits. And so being faithful meant taking the brunt of public insults, loss of position in society, in the community. And so there would be a built-in temptation just to kind of ease up on the words of Jesus. Relax. Being ashamed of the gospel can and does often lead to shameful acts that bring the gospel into disrepute with others. Apostasy. Mark 8, 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, Jesus knows what kind of generation we're going to be in, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Friends, sometimes we disassociate ourselves from persecution because we live in Houston, Texas, and, and we live in the U.S., and we're fairly safe, and, and Christianity is relatively, faces little pressure here compared to other places. I understand all that, but I just want you to, to look around and not, not just be lulled into thinking that everyone is a Christian around us. Everyone's living by a biblical worldview. Have you noticed just recently a string of people kind of deconstructing their faith? In other words, leaving their faith? Often celebrities or people who have kind of in high visibility. Well, that's not just happening because they found a better way or some new religious system. It's often a result of pressure from the world, especially today related to issues of sexuality, gender, human rights, abortion, right? The Christian worldview on those issues is increasingly being seen as oppressive, anti-constitutional, in some circles criminal. So I'm not trying to be an alarmist and say, hey, did you hear about in the last uh, presidential, one of the debates that someone said they would remove a church's tax-exempt status if they basically held to a biblical worldview of manhood and womanhood? I'm not trying to get us all worked up. No, I think we should just be ready. Peter says, don't be surprised. Remember Jesus' words, woe to you when all people speak well of you. For their fathers did also to the false prophets. Being a faithful Christian is becoming less and less popular today. There's pressure to be ashamed of the Bible's teaching. So don't be as surprised when you're faced with it. Or you're faced with it because you're a member of a church that is seeking to be faithful to what the Bible says about some of these issues. We need to ask ourselves, are we going to be faithful to God's word, to Jesus? John 15, 20, Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So friends, just remember, we carry with us the name of Christ. And so we want to seek to glorify God in that name, speak to Others speak the truth in love, knowing that suffering is a regular, normal part of the Christian life. Now, why is it the case? What is the purpose of that suffering? Well, that's our second question. Number two, what is the purpose of suffering in my life? What is the purpose of suffering in my life? And you see it right there in verse 12. This trial has come upon you to test you. 
right? And I think maybe you ask yourself, well, what does that, what does that mean? What does it mean to be tested by a, a trial? And I think one thing to keep in your mind is as you're reading the Bible and trying to understand, understand what it means, how has this author used words kind of here in this verse that I'm staring at and then also in other places in the same book and then maybe take it back a little bit in the, in the whole New Testament and even further in the whole Bible. Let's look at verse 12 again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I think there's some, some, some words there that we, we're familiar with. We've heard before in 1 Peter. Fiery trials, testing. Where have we, where have we heard that before? It's back in chapter 1. Flip back over there. Just flip a page over in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter says, In this you rejoice. He's about to tell us again to rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we get an idea of what he means by testing here, don't we? It's a, it's a process of refining, of purifying. And God is in control, isn't he? If necessary, who decides if it's necessary? God does. These are really important verses. Not just for this message, but for like your long-term memory bank for sanctification, Suffering that comes to us along the path of obedience to Jesus has a purpose. It has a purpose. In God's wisdom, he, he's the one who decides and in his wisdom that we're not privy to. We don't know the, when it's necessary and when it's not. We shouldn't try to connect dots to my suffering and this other thing that I did. No, that's, those are the, some of the secret things that belong to the Lord, I think. But in in his wisdom, he refines his people through difficulty and suffering and trials so that our faith will be purified and revealed as genuine. And friends, this kind of thinking is not natural. You know, in an earlier version of the NIV, this little phrase, to test you, was just left off. It wasn't there. Because it implies that God is involved in this testing, in our suffering. But Peter tells us that not only is God testing us, but in the mystery of God's providence, it's for our good. It's, it's a refining process. And as God's people, we of all people should, should be aware of this and understand this. Look at verse 17 back in chapter 3. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, don't, don't get thrown off by, by kind of thinking about judgment and judgment of Christians as, as believers. The New Testament's clear that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we also see passages like this and others that believers nevertheless stand before God in judgment and it will be the righteousness of Christ that brings us through. And I think we want to look at this judgment not, not, and not have a connotation of it being toward punishment, but more as a, as a reference of the action of a judge. You've judged something before. You're, you're taking action in that judgment. And I think that's what's happening here. And, and that's a, a, a lexical option for the word judgment, for what it means. 
It's a judgment of purification, not of condemnation. And it starts with the household of God. That's the church. And there's, there's Old Testament passages that kind of stand behind this text. Um, Malachi 3 is one. Malachi 3 speaks of God coming suddenly into his house, his temple, in judgment. It says he's going to be like a refiner's fire in Malachi 3.3. 3. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, the priests, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Another passage in Ezekiel chapter 9, the Lord commissions judgment to like a, an angel-like figure who passes through the city of Jerusalem, and he puts marks on the foreheads of the men who, who sigh and groan over all the abominations that committed, were committed in the city. So they're, they're repentant and, and they're, they're, they're mourning over the sin of the city. They get this mark on their forehead. But the others, he tells this, this agent of judgment, pass through the city after him and strike. And he goes to show the judgment of striking them down. And he says, begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. So this, this picture of judgment is a, is a picture of, of purification through suffering, but I think also of, of separation, of identification. Like it begins with those who confess the name of Jesus, who are in the household of God. 1 Peter 2, 5 says, that's us. We're living stones who make up a spiritual house. It's like the beginning of this kind of end times judgment sort of starting now in a, almost a visible way. Do you remember what, what Jesus, the parable Jesus told in Matthew 25? When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. As you read that passage, you see the sheep are sort of first separated and sorted and then the goats. So you almost see the suffering as like a sorting kind of action on the church. Friends, if we're only in this Christianity thing for the benefits that we think we're going to receive, maybe we're just here because we want to make our parents happy. We want something better out of life and maybe Jesus could give us something like a better marriage or family or maybe prosperity or make work go better for me. And suffering reveals what, what we really are. And this is why we need to be really clear, I think, as a church on the doctrine of conversion. That, that, those, that conversion are, means that we have to be born again by the Spirit. We have to be those who have repented of our sins and put our trust in Christ. And if we're those that have just bought kind of a bill of goods, that think we, what we can get out of Christianity, what's in it for us, we're with the crowd. Suffering is going to say, oh, I'm done. I'm out. It's not worth it. And that's, that's a purpose here of, of suffering that we see. There's also another aspect of this as well. Look again at the end of verse 17. On into verse 18. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? 
So suffering purifies and it separates, but it also, I pray, awakens in us a pity for unbelievers, for those that don't know Christ. Here Peter's quoting from the Proverbs, verse 18, saying that the righteous are scarcely saved. Um, I don't think that means, well, man, God just barely did it. It's really hard for God, but it's another way to say it's just with difficulty. So through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is how sanctification works. God sanctifies us through suffering throughout our lives. But if that's true for believers, justified by grace through faith, and then sanctified through this suffering and other things that God uses, means of grace, what about those who have not taken refuge in Christ? What about those that will face God with only their own merits to bring to the table? Proudly, trusting in their own goodness, or simply ignorant of God's holiness. They don't know that there's a holy God, and they don't know that they have violated his character. They've rebelled against him. They don't know that they deserve justice, and they don't know that there's a Savior. What will become of them, Peter says? He doesn't give an answer. But I think we're meant to supply the answer, aren't we? It will be absolutely terrible for them. Paul just gives us a glimpse in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And these are those who do not obey the gospel. Those phrases show up both in Paul and in Peter. That's what separates the sheep and the goats, those that are saved and those that are not, those that are purified and those that are condemned. Not, not some action that we do, walking an aisle, praying a prayer, signing a card, but obeying the gospel. The gospel is good news, but it requires a response. It requires obedience. Beloved, meditate on this as you think about and pray for your friends who don't know Christ. And you pray for your own boldness in evangelism. Pray that you would just be clear about the gospel. That God is holy and that we deserve judgment for our rebellion against him. We are sinful. We've fallen short of his glory. And Jesus came to save us, to live a life of obedience and love in our place and then to die as a sacrifice, a substitute for our sins, to pay the penalty that we deserve. And he did. And he rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death, ascended to the right hand of the Father. Do your non-Christian friends know that? And have you this morning responded to that news. The Bible calls us to repent of our sin and to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. That's how we respond. We turn and put our trust in Christ and we see him forever as our king. 
We lay our life down in obedience to him and follow him alone. Friend, have you obeyed the gospel? Are you obeying the gospel or are you just playing games? We know that suffering has a purpose. We should expect it. How do we get through it? That's what we're going to briefly look at now. The third question, how do I remain faithful in the midst of suffering? There are some, some really good anchors in this passage for us to help us to, 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 to remain faithful in the midst of suffering, to show us God's means of keeping us faithful in the midst of suffering. And I do think this, this often um, maybe comes with time and, and walking with Jesus for a while. And you've heard the phrase, suffering is the best seminary. I think that's right. The best school. The longer we attend, the more we learn. But one thing we can learn, I'll mention two or three of these in suffering, is that we can learn to rejoice. So look at verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So notice that Peter talks about our sufferings, actually not as our sufferings, but sharing in Christ's sufferings. I I think that's something to think about and to meditate on, right? Helps us to remember that Jesus actually suffered before us and is with us. We're sharing in his sufferings as we're seeking to follow him, give our life over to him. He's our comforter. He's our advocate in trials. He knows what it's like. And listen, I don't think Peter means that when suffering and trial come to you, you should throw a party and you're excited about the suffering. I'm so glad about this pain. I'm so glad about this person that I've loved my whole life and now they're gone. That's not what he says. But rejoice in the fact that you know one day Jesus' glory will be revealed. You can rejoice in the future glory of Christ now. We're rejoicing with him in, in that glory to come. Sometimes you need to think about this even as it relates to, to pressure for being a follower of Jesus um, and, and, and in terms of persecution or being, being kind of laughed at or thought about as a Christian by others. John 12 is a good example. John twelve forty two. Kind of this description of, of kind of how the Pharisees and religious leaders are responding to Jesus. Um, nevertheless, many of these, of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Friends, we have to decide which glory do we love. Which glory is worth suffering for? Which glory are we looking for? Rejoicing in suffering shows that we're longing for the day when it's about Jesus and he makes all the wrong things right. All the pain is healed. Tears wiped away. So more than my comfort right now and being liked right now, more than the ease of my circumstances right now, I've got to learn to rejoice in the school of suffering because I'm following after Jesus and one day his glory is going to be revealed. Another thing you see here is that we learn in our suffering, we're not alone. Verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
Here you see Peter kind of virtually just repeating Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when you're persecuted, for great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice! But also know that you're not alone. You're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And this is God's promise of help to us when we are suffering. Not that we don't have the Holy Spirit um, when we're not suffering, but when we are, he is especially near to us, which is exactly the opposite of what we typically think, isn't it? Where is God in this pain and suffering? Why is this happening to me? He's left me. But just, brother or sister, take it on the authority of God's word right here, verse 14, that when you suffer, your helper is near. God draws near. You're not alone. You're blessed. And I think all of these truths sort of just culminate They help us to embrace what he says there in his conclusion in verse 19. Just wholeheartedly, not seeing it as just a sentence in the Bible that we're supposed to believe, but really giving ourselves to trusting God. Look at verse 19. Therefore, he's concluding, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And trust your soul to your faithful creator while doing good. If you suffer according to God's will, that's an interesting phrase to think about. Um, I think that could mean we suffer for doing, for doing God's will. So I'm suffering while I'm obeying Jesus. Or it could mean it's God's will that I'm suffering. Um, I'm not sure how to take either, either way, but I know that both of those options are true. Both of those options are true. Nothing comes to us in way of suffering without passing through God's good and sovereign hands. And we know that we're not supposed to suffer for for crimes, but as followers of Jesus. So according to God's will. Because all that is true, you can actually entrust your soul to God in your suffering. You can entrust fully your soul to him. You can, you can do what Jesus did in 1 Peter 2.23. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And are you entrusting your soul, everything you have to God with your unanswered questions and your suffering and your pain? Are you giving yourself to him without any caveats? Without any only, I'm only gonna trust you, Lord, if this happens. But if this doesn't happen, we're done. Jesus, some of his last words on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Friends, don't you love the picture of, of who we're putting our soul, who's caring for our soul? He's our faithful creator. Faithful creator. Faithful reminds us of God's goodness. He's always kept his promises. He can be trusted He's our father. Even when it hurts, he is there. And he's the creator. That points to his dominion and sovereignty over all things. Even our current situation, even our suffering. He is sovereign over us. It's a lot of theology in that song. Even when it's painful, 
Even when we're confused, even when we're angry, we can know that we're totally safe in our Father's arms. Believer, entrust yourselves, entrust your soul to your faithful creator. One last thing, while doing good. Peter says, when you're suffering, do good. Do good. That magnifies your trust, right? When you're, when you're in pain and suffering, you're not inwardly focused. You're still trying to obey Jesus. And that magnifies where your trust is. It's not in your circumstances. It's in Christ. It's in the future glory to be revealed. How do you know? Well, he's still doing good. He's still seeking to tell sinners about Jesus. He's still seeking to love people. I love the story of Rosaria Butterfield and her conversion. She's a, she's a lesbian. She's a, a committed feminist and all these things. And she understands like the arguments out there, but it was sitting in the living room with a, with a pastor and his wife and just being loved on. It kind of melted away just some of the, just the, the, the dross that was blinding her. Keep on doing good. We don't need to debate people in their sin. There should be a big difference in our conversations with people who are far from God between like what we're saying and what you hear on Fox News. Like here's, what, here's, our, here's where we stand. And here, but we need to be, we need to be doing good and, and speaking the truth in love. Don't just share your views. Show love. What does it say about Jesus that we would do good even to those that we disagree with most, even to those that would harm us? Be patient as God has been patient with you. This is what it looks like to remain faithful in the midst of suffering. The school of suffering teaches us to trust that that we're not alone, that God is in control, and to do good. Yes, even to rejoice. Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss the wave that strikes me against the rock of ages. Beloved, I pray that by God's grace, we would do the same. As George Matheson, as Matheson said, there is a time coming in which your glory shall consist in the very thing which now constitutes your pain. And then after he gave all those examples of, of the heroes of the faith in the Bible who were blessed most in their suffering, he ended that paragraph with his greatest example, Jesus himself. He says, and ask one more, the Son of God. Ask him, when has come his rule over the world? And he will answer from the cold ground on which I was lying, the Gethsemane ground. I received my scepter there. You too, my soul, Matheson writes, shall be garlanded by Gethsemane. The cup thou wish would pass from thee will be thy crown in the world and by and by. Therefore, those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us in this. Help us in our understanding and in our practice. Help us in our head and our heart. There's both of those things at work here, Lord, trying to sort out your sovereignty and suffering and, and then really opening up ourselves to trust you totally, to totally entrust ourselves to you. Lord, we pray that you would help us and that as a congregation that we would, by your spirit, by the power that you supply, commend the gospel by doing good 
even in the midst of dark times, suffering and pain and difficulty. Help us, Lord, we pray. It's in Jesus' name, amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the Great Commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.